Good morning. My name is Bill Safestrom. This morning, our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen, and I will be sharing this sermon with you this morning. Let's bow our heads once more in prayer. God, uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for what Advent means to us. Thank you for coming to this world. Um, Thank you for what you brought us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. I pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. Now, traditionally, an Advent is the time that the church prepares us for the Advent of Christmas, for when Jesus Christ is born to the world. So you might be asking, why are we reading the scripture we just read? Why are we reading about Jesus bringing a sword into this world? Aren't we supposed to seek peace? What does this mean that he brought a sword and that he didn't come to bring peace? Uh, This passage seems offensive. It's shocking. I believe Jesus said what he said for the fact that it was offensive and shocking. The whole point that Jesus came to this earth and was born to us on Christmas Day was that he had to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Sin is deceptive. When we participate in sin, it works towards our destruction. Even after Jesus started his ministry and spent time walking around teaching and healing people, people still didn't understand the power and nature of sin. And just as um, you might wake a person who's asleep with a bucket of ice water on their face, that's what this passage does. The, the function of this passage is it wakes people up um, to reveal things as they truly are. In Matthew 10, Jesus, people, Jesus sorry, is waking people up to a reality. The problem Jesus faces in this chapter is that his disciples might not fully understand the gravity of sin in this world and what has to be done in order to undo the powers of sin. People are caught up in a bad worldview, a bad way to do life, and were trusting in the wrong things. People had missed out on why Christmas needed to happen and what hope Christmas brought. This passage is relevant to us today because we can easily slip into trivializing the gravity of sin. And we can trivialize Christmas 
We can miss out on what Christmas needed to happen for us. So let's look again at Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. It reads, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Once again, when Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, he is shocking his audience. The use of the word sword here, it's not a license for violence. It's not a proof tech to say violence is okay. It's a metaphor. Um, This idea of sword is actually picked up again in different parts of the New Testament. Hebrews 4, 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The sword in our Matthew passage is something which divides people's heart and soul. It speaks to them. It penetrates who they are. Also, this sword penetrates society. It brings division to people. The message of Christmas was offensive and not everyone wanted to hear it. The context of Matthew 10 is that at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is commissioning and sending out his 12 disciples to go preach the message of the hope of the gospel. And gospel just means good news. Jesus was telling these disciples, I want you to go in uh, throughout all of Israel and go to different towns and preach my message. But he warns them earlier in the chapter that when they go out, not everyone's going to be receptive to their message. Not everyone's going to listen to what they have to say. In fact, he says, the disciples will be like sheep among wolves. And the reason why it's offensive, why some will reject it, is because the message of the hope of the gospel, of the good news that Jesus Christ has come to give us hope, implies, if you haven't heard the message, that, you're list- that you've been following bad news. Right? In order to have good news, we first have to have bad news. And the bad news that the disciples brought is the way you're living isn't okay. And that is offensive. The consequences of Jesus' message is that it pierces like a double-edged sword. Some would believe it and some would not. And as a result, verse 35 says, a man will turn against his father, a daughter, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Moreover, those who believe in the message will form new alliances. A man's enemies will become members of his own household. The cost of Jesus' message is that it will cause conflict and division. Jesus did not come to bring a peace that results in family and friends happily getting along. The peace Jesus brought to us, brought to this world on Christmas Day, was not a Hallmark Christmas special type of peace. How many of you have seen a Hallmark Christmas special? Show me your hands. Well, yeah, see, most of us. And some people I saw were a little slow to raise their hands. Um, <laughs> I've definitely seen my fair share. Uh, Eva and I, my wife, uh, we love Christmas. We're kind of suckers for it. You're supposed to, uh, some people say, um, Pastor Julie for one, that you shouldn't uh, listen to Christmas music or really put out the decorations until after Thanksgiving. I definitely break this rule. Um, we're, we're just like, oh, it's cold weather, let's do it. And so um, I think we started listening to Christmas music like maybe three weeks ago. Pretty, I know, pretty early. Um, but we love all of everything to do with Christmas. The decorations, the Christmas sweaters, 
Uh, Eva's wearing one right now. <laughs> we just love it. Um, it's really great stuff. But the truth is, is that Christmas is a lot deeper than some of the messages we hear. Uh, I remember one particular Hallmark Christmas special. This was the plot. There's a wealthy businessman, and he wants to build a shopping mall uh, over the site of this beloved town's Christmas tree. There's also a widow and her son, and they send out flyers and are trying to get everyone to vote against this, and they don't want the shopping mall to be put up. And somehow, by the end of the story, it turns out this wealthy businessman has a son who ends up being engaged to this widow, and um, so now they're a, happily f- a, f- a happy family. And then also, the businessman suddenly changes his mind because the spirit of Christmas was around him. He magically just feels better. And so then they all hold hands and sing Christmas songs, and the show ends. <laughs> um, this is kind of sometimes what we hear in our culture, that the peace that Christmas brings is this let's hold hands, everything magically gets better sort of Christmas. But that's not the peace that Christmas brings. The hope of Christmas is not that things magically get better. Rather, it's that Jesus had to come into this world to tear apart and dismantle certain things in our lives. When scriptures call Jesus our Prince of Peace, the peace they are talking about is shalom. Shalom in Hebrew means peace. It is more, though, than just people laying down their arms and holding hands. Shalom refers to bringing everything back to the way God had created things in the first place. The peace the New Testament talks about implies the world is not as it should be. Things have gone drastically wrong. And the thing that's wrong is sin. We use sin all the time. It simply means missing the mark. We were meant for something so much more and we fall short. The world is not as it should be. The truth is that God created the world to work in a certain way. In Genesis, it says, the way God created the world to work was good. We know he created physical laws uh, to govern the universe. We know there's relativity and gravity and physics, and all these things help to govern the universe. They all help everything to work for our benefit. Our planet is a certain distance from the sun. It has a certain tilt. There's a moon that gives us tides. And all these things create the perfect environment for human beings to flourish. This is what God's design did. His design was to help us flourish. But God didn't just put physical laws into the earth. He also put spiritual laws and relational laws. We were supposed to act a certain way. It says in scripture that if everything worked according to the way God would have it work, that there'd be plenty of food for us. We would share. The, um, the earth would water the fields. We could cultivate it, and we would have enough food. And moreover, that if everything worked the way it should, human beings wouldn't be in conflict. We'd be loving and supporting one another. So in God's system, everything works. Everything flourishes, and it's all for our good. And once again, Genesis says that his plan was good. The way he wanted to govern the world made sense. It was helpful. Proverbs tells us that the way God governed the world was wise. There was a wisdom to it. But then, as we know, someone tricked humans into believing there is a better and a wiser way. 
the devil talks to Adam and Eve and convinces them that God's system wasn't quite good enough, that there was something outside of God's system that would help them get what they truly wanted. God was holding them back from their true potential. And instead of listening to God's wisdom, humans decided to trust in their own wisdom. And it also says in Scripture, ever since this, humans' wisdom to God seemed like foolishness, and God's wisdom to humans seemed like foolishness. So they just didn't understand each other. That's the problem with sin. It usually doesn't seem that bad. It makes sense to us when it first starts off. I mean, what is really so bad about eating a piece of fruit? They're not murdering someone. They didn't yet do the Cain and Abel sin. They're just eating fruit. How can that be so bad? Um, I have a story to illustrate this. Eve and I uh, were driving from Chicago to Seattle. It's a trip that I had done about three or four times. um, And I think this was Eva's first or second time. So she had done it a little bit less. So I should be paying more attention to the road than she should. Also, I was driving at the moment. So of course I should be paying more attention to the road than she should. Uh, We were in South Dakota and we were headed towards the Badlands. I was really excited to see the Badlands. I love it. It's this great formation. I only get to see it every so often because it takes so long to get there. And uh, we were excited to get there. And even I kind of had this conversation. We're like, you know, we're on I-90. Like, it goes straight through Mercer Island. We don't really need our Siri map app. Like, we'll, f- we'll just be able to pay attention to the road. We'll know if um, we're going the right di- direction or not. How hard could it be? So we decided to turn off the map app um, on our phone. All of a sudden, about an hour and a half later, uh, as we were singing songs and just kind of enjoying the road trip, we saw a sign that said, Welcome to Minneapolis. And, <laughs> and uh, for those of you that know your Midwest geography, we were pretty far off track. Um, we were about 75 miles off track. And did I take responsibility for this? No, of course not. The first thing I did was I yelled at Eva. I was like, Eva! How could you do this? Why did you turn off the map app? Now we're lost. Now we won't see the Badlands. By the time we get there, the sun will set, and we'll have to wait for the next year to see them. Like, I can't believe you ruined this for me. That's what I told her. And the thing is, the way sin works is that I actually believed this. I really thought it was her fault. Even though I was the driver, right? I should be paying attention to the road signs. But I blamed my wife Um, I think many of us have probably been in this situation before. Sin's deceptive, and it offers us ways to get out of responsibility and to blame others. Um, So in this instance, God created this beautiful thing called marriage, right? Marriage is for our benefit. It helps us. Uh, In a marriage relationship, the two are supposed to love and support one another, That's what we say in our marriage vows. Was I loving and supporting this instance? No, I wasn't. Instead of listening to the way God wants marriage to work, in this instance, I look to my own wisdom. I'm like, oh, I can use this as a scapegoat and to place the blame and to deal with my um, own issues of anger. I was really angry. Like, I was really excited to see the Badlands. And I got myself out of the situation by blaming my wife. Um, what's worse is that when Eva was helping me with a story for the sermon, um, I asked her, like, do you have any good stories of um, when I've, like, blamed you for something? (laughs) 
apparently she has quite a lot. Um, but, and they're all, they're all very true. Um, and I knew this story, and I knew I put the blame on her, but like, sin is so deceptive that I didn't realize quite how much I put the blame on her. Because I've told this story to other people since, but the way I always tell this story is that it was Eva's fault, right? I continue to tell this narrative. Um, I continue to live into the sin because I just don't want to deal that I couldn't see a road sign that said exit to I, I think it was like 65 or something. I just didn't want to deal with it. This is what sin does to us. It's so deceptive that we actually believe it is truth. All sin is a basic misuse of what God designed for us. Um, When Eve was tempted and God confronts her, she says, well, the serpent tempted me to. And when Adam is asked by God why he sinned, he says, well, the woman you put here told me to. As if that's somehow an excuse, right? But But we think it is. Once again, sin is a basic misuse of the, what God designed us for. It's putting our hope in the wrong thing that we think will benefit us. Scriptures talk about ever since Adam and Eve, sin has got worse. It's a snowball effect. Imagine uh, launching a snowball from the top of Mount Rainier, and conditions are just perfect, and by the time it gets to the bottom, it's huge, right? And it's going to do some damage. It could, like, knock a lodge over. That's the way sin works. It just keeps on getting worse. And as human history goes on, brokenness begets brokenness, and the world gets worse. Um, Since the dawn of time, basically, humans have put their hope in creating a good life for themselves at other expense. If we look at human history, we can see that as people groups started to become tribes um, and started cultivating the land, the ones that had better land people would fight them so they could get that land for themselves. And then once they got the land, they'd put a fence around it and they'd make the losers of the battle um, be their slaves. And the slaves would work the land and they'd get all the resources for themselves. And um, this just keeps on happening throughout human history and things get worse and sayings get heinous and there's slavery and there's sex trafficking and there's things that really hurt God's heart. The atmosphere of sin that was created on the earth was a survival of the fittest. Whoever was the strongest and smartest, sorry, whoever was the strongest and smartest would take what they wanted. And whoever wasn't as strong, who wasn't as smart, who wasn't as self-reliant and didn't know how to play the game was left with little or persecuted. As we know in the story of Israel, Israel is not the strongest kingdom. They had been persecuted for hundreds of years. We know they were enslaved by Egypt, then they got out, and then eventually they formed their own kingdom, but they constantly had wars. And then they were oppressed and taken over by evil empire after evil empire, and they were enslaved again. And it's during the time of their second enslavement when their hope seems bleak that God sends a message. He says, I will send you a savior. And this savior is going to undo all the bad things that humans have done. He's going to unwork all the brokenness. He's going to bring life back into the world. It says in scriptures that the savior would come to this earth and bring things back to the way they were meant to be in the beginning. Once again, that word means shalom, to bring things to the way they should be. And this was to bring God's kingdom. God's kingdom simply means the place where God is king, where people listen to God and follow his rules. 
When the Savior came, all the brokenness and suffering would be put to an end. People would go back into the way they were supposed to live with God as their master, and they would once again help each other and not hurt each other. When Jesus came into this world on Christmas Day, the hope he brought was the kingdom of God, was a new way of living, that people had a chance to put their trust in Jesus as opposed to their own wisdom. But even though Jesus had come into their midst, the thing is, many people missed out on the Savior. Even though the Jewish people had been longing for the Savior, when he finally came, many were blind to the fact that he was in their midst and talking to their faces. It was hard for the Pharisees and the religious elite to see that Jesus was their hope because, truth be told, they were people that were benefiting from the system of survival of the fittest. It was hard for them to realize that Jesus was their hope because the hope that the world had been listening to was working out for them. They were not doing too bad. They were powerful. They were doing pretty good in life. So if you're doing pretty good in life, it's going to be hard to hear the message that the way we do, the way we operate the world doesn't really work for all of humanity. The wrongs that the Messiah had come to undo, the religious elite believed were just these heinous evils. Like, of course, we need the Messiah because of the evil Romans. They're doing these things to us. Or we need the Messiah because of the murderers and the adulterers. But it's hard for them to look in the mirror and realize that they needed this Messiah because of their own sin, and they stood just as guilty as anyone else. In order to help people realize that Jesus had come, Jesus had to tell people about the kingdom of God. Even though the Jewish people knew about it and they knew it was their hope, Jesus had to continually tell them over and over again. I mean, there are hundreds of scriptures out there where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He used parables and stories, and he teaches at length that he came to bring the kingdom. He came to undo the wrong systems we had and put new systems into place that operate around God as our master. One such moment in which Jesus is telling people about the hope of the kingdom of God is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches to us in Luke six seventeen through 26. I'm going to go ahead and read that whole scripture for us. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him in healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. 
When Jesus says his blessings and woes, what he's doing for people is helping them to see reality as it is. This is another shocking and offensive moment, as if people were asleep and Jesus was throwing a bucket of ice water in their faces. It's shocking. It's offensive, right? Um, Jesus is saying the world's not as we think it is. What he's saying here is not that it's like evil to live in a home. I live in a home. He's not saying it's evil to laugh. I like to laugh and have fun. But what he's saying is that things are not as they seem. Blessed means that you are in a favorable position. If someone's blessed, life is working out for them. They're going on the right trajectory. And when Jesus says, woe to you, he's saying, watch out. Things are not as they seem. He's not saying you're bad. He's saying, watch out. Um, Think about some of the people that the Bible calls blessed. Think about Mary in the story of Christmas. She was called blessed. She was, it, uh, it says in scriptures, God has given you favor. He looks down upon you with favor. You're in a favorable position. But how does the story of Mary go? She was 14, we think, so pretty young. She was unwed, and God made her pregnant. And because of this, Joseph was ready to divorce her. And back then, if you were caught in adultery, you might be stoned. So she was probably fearing for her life, and at one point, fearing a divorce. Well, eventually, God sends an angel to Mary. And, sorry, he already did that. God sends an angel to Joseph and um, says that she has not committed adultery. I have done this. And so Joseph stays with her, which is good. But still, Caesar puts out a census. And they have to leave their home while she's very pregnant and ride on a donkey, which I don't think would be comfortable. And they end up in Bethlehem. But even when they get to Bethlehem, we know there's no room for them in the inn. So then they end up going to the manger and Mary gives birth. And this isn't the hallmark special uh, Advent birth were led to think. It wasn't this pristine manger where Jesus was carefully placed on straw. The birth wasn't painless and quick, probably. And Jesus didn't lay quietly in a manger. He probably wailed. Okay? Marriage is painful, right? And also, the stable probably smelled like poop. There were animals, and they were pooping. It was, and it was maybe cold. This is not this sort of magical experience that we're led to believe. It was real. It was raw. It was hard. And even after this, after Mary and Joseph have a few months to kind of enjoy their time in Bethlehem, and then the wise men come, and they tell King Herod that they have come to find the new king of the Jews that has been prophesied. And King Herod knows the prophecy. He knows this king is going to dismantle the powers that be and become the new king. So he wants to stop it. So Herod puts out an edict that all the babies born in Bethlehem over the past few months should be killed. And so to escape this slaughter, Mary and Joseph become refugees. They flee their country of origin in hope that someone would let them have sanctuary. And they come to Egypt and God protects them. The point is, is that if Mary is blessed and in a favorable position, we need to rethink what blessed is means. Jesus saying in this scripture, if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you weep, if people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject you, then you're in a favorable position. Things are working out for you. That seems a little weird, right? Um, And also, if you're in a position 
where uh, things are working out for you and you're admired by others and you're rich and you're living in a good home, then you're not in a favorable position. Why is this? It's because to Jesus, a favorable position means you know that this world is not working and that your only hope is in him. It's not wrong to laugh or have a good meal or to be admired at all. But this puts you in an unfavorable position to realize your desperate need of Jesus. Because truth be told, the world has kind of worked out for you. So it's hard to realize that the world is not working and that we need a Savior to completely undo everything and reestablish himself as king. Many of the people we see in the Gospels who could not realize their need for Jesus was because they were in a favorable position. And many of the people who were able to see Jesus, it was because they were in an unfavorable position. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers were more receptive to the fact that the world was not working for them. It was easier for them to see the failures of how this world works and to know that the way the world works does not benefit all of humanity. And we have a danger of falling into the same trap as the Pharisees and believing that we're basically doing all right. That somehow the fact that we have a nice home and a family with smart kids means we're blessed and things are working out for us. It's not that these things are bad at all. Rather, it's if we place our hope in that alone, then we've missed out on our true hope. Recently, my wife and I bought a house. We now live in West Seattle. We love our house. We think it's beautiful. It's this peaceful sanctuary for us when we come home. Um, We actually have a little partial view of the sound of the Olympics, which we really love um, when they're out. And so most people would say, life is going well for them. They're doing all right. They're on a good trajectory. They have a home. They're married. uh, They have jobs. They seem to enjoy their life. They get to go on hikes. Life is working out for them. But what scripture is saying is watch out. Now is the time to be on guard. Otherwise, you might fall into the trap of placing your hope in these material things and missing out on your true hope of Jesus Christ. Now more than ever, Eva and I are in danger of forgetting our hope. We're in danger of forgetting the world is not working and we need Jesus to completely redo everything. Jesus reveals things as they are. The world is not okay. Our human system of survival of the fittest has created a broken world. We know there's many war-torn countries all around us. We know it's not working out. There's refugees who have no sanctuary to escape violence. Um, We have poor people and homeless people in America. Life's not working out for them. We continue to misuse all the good things that God designed for us. We know God designed relationships for our benefit, yet there's domestic violence, there's divorce, there's abuse. We know that God um, designed pleasure for our benefit to help us out, yet we completely warp this. And now we have drug drug trafficking and sex trafficking. We live in a world that is messed up and we need Jesus to take control. Now more than ever, people need to put their hope in Jesus and the kingdom he brings instead of looking towards their own wisdom. The hope of Christmas is that Jesus came into this world to become our Savior and Lord. Instead of seeking comfort in our position in life, 
we have an invitation to fall on our knees and let Jesus be the Lord of our life. Let him be our only hope. But we have to remember that the hope of Christmas is not that everything magically gets better. This hope comes at a cost. Following Jesus is not easy. If you are looking for an easy life, don't follow Jesus. Jesus healed people's brokenness. He sought out the broken and the disenfranchised in society. He ate with tax collectors and lepers and prostitutes, and he did this boldly. Many of the people in power, however, were not happy with him. He hung out with the wrong people and did the wrong things. He was healing on the Sabbath day. The more that Jesus sought to redeem the brokenness of the world, life got tougher and tougher for him. The more he healed and loved people, the more the religious leaders wanted to persecute him. Jesus' love did not bring a faux version of peace. He did not come to make a hallmark special type of tranquility. Rather, he came to upset the system of sin that we live in, that Paul calls the patterns of this world. He came to upset the religious elite, and finally, it cost Jesus his life. When Jesus died for our sins, he offers us the hope of salvation, the hope of following him and living according to his kingdom instead of our own wisdom. But this hope comes at a cost. If we follow Jesus' example, life might not be easy for us. Being a Christian is not easy. We're asked to join Jesus in healing the brokenness of the world by loving like he did in a countercultural way. And once we come under Jesus' lordship and make his priorities our priorities, we might be asked to give up some of the comforts we now have if they get in the way of following him. Listening to Jesus' message of radical love is dangerous. It will make people angry. It might make your family angry or your friends. It will cause conflict and division. But we cannot let this stop from living out this new way of life that Jesus has taught us. Let us fall on our knees, admit they were not fit to master our lives, and trust instead in Jesus' hope and the kingdom he brings. Amen.